pastor, and trust that tonight we'll be encouraged and challenged by what we learn from the Word. So we're in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be looking tonight specifically at a pretty, what I would imagine would be a familiar passage for most of you. Uh, You might recognize some of the verses at the end. We're going to look at verses 35 through verse 38, and the title up at the top of my Bible says, The harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. It's a pretty common uh, uh, passage, one that you probably are quite familiar with. And yet, I hope what we're going to see tonight is a little bit of not only what uh, Christ commissions us to do, and that's what I want to focus our time on, but also I hope we'll see that undergirding that is something of the compassion of Jesus Christ. In fact, the text actually kind of gives us a hint that what Jesus is getting at in this passage and what, what he's saying is because of his compassion for these lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he's going to say. And, and I trust we'll be able to see something about even our Savior tonight that will be encouraging to us and then also challenging as we go out to do what he's called us to do. So I want to read verse 35 to 38 together. And you know what? Actually, let's read... Through, down through verse 4. If you, uh, I'm, I'm going to actually cover chapter 10, verse 1 through 4 a little bit. Uh, you may know that the chapter and verse markings were kind of added later on. Okay, the, They weren't original in, in the manuscripts, and that's because uh, you can imagine, you know, if you have a, just a big scroll, and you know, how do you identify that? Okay, I'm going to read, you know, kind of down here by the, this paragraph, look at this word. It's just hard to identify, right? So chapter, verse numbers were added in later to help us be able to say, look at chapter 9, verse 35. So, but in some of these cases, you can see how the flow just continues. And so when we see Jesus commissioning and telling his disciples to pray the Lord of the harvest, then he's going to send them right out in chapter 10. So you can see it kind of flows right together. So let's read verse 35 down through chapter 10, verse 4. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples. And gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of these twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Altheus. And Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And what I want us to see tonight is a little bit about Jesus' compassion and what he's actually asking these disciples to do and really what he wants for us. I mean, you come together here in the middle of the week. Okay, probably most of you have been working. You've been having a lot of things on your heart and on your mind. And we want to recalibrate our minds and calibrate our hearts to what God has called us to do. Not just uh, on particular days or not just in certain seasons of life, but all throughout life. Okay, so first of all, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down this way. We see Jesus' compassion in his just ministry generally. Just in his ministry, we see Jesus' compassion. If you look at verse 35, it said, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Okay, in other words, what that means is he didn't go to every city and village that there ever was on on the face of the planet at that time. It's just saying he went everywhere, right? He wasn't selective in going to a certain class of people. Maybe the class of people he was comfortable with. Or certainly a certain race of people. We see that he's often criticized by people who are talking to Gentiles or talking to Samaritans. 
certainly people of a socioeconomic group, okay? He wasn't just talking with maybe fishermen or just talking with city officials in Jerusalem. No, he was going indiscriminate. Do you see that? He's going to all the cities, all the villages, and the message is the same to everyone. He's not just focusing on one sort of niche. He's indiscriminate in who he goes to, to all people. And if you look, note what characterizes his ministry to all people. It says he goes throughout all the cities, all the villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he's going out and he's proclaiming the gospel. And this is really, I think it's interesting to know, this is even after the Pharisees criticize him. Now, you might have even guessed, in our church we're studying through the gospel of Matthew. Okay, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm preaching this. Um, but one thing we've noticed as we've gone through is the Pharisees are continually criticizing Jesus. And if you're following the flow of the book, what you realize is that at the end of chapter 9, the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus really reaches an all-time low. I mean, they go to the point of really utter blasphemy. Look what they say in verse 34, the verse right before our section. The Pharisees says, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, they're saying Jesus is from the pit of hell himself. Jesus is one of these, right? He's satanically influenced. This is utter blasphemy. And yet, right after that, think about that. If that happened to you, if somebody just criticized you horribly in just an awful way, and they totally misunderstood you, what would you do? I mean, I think, you know what I would do? No, 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 you're totally missing the point. Are you crazy? Why are you saying that? You know, let me explain, all right? I think, I think we must be missing each other, right? I would go on the defensive. In fact, if they continued, I'd probably tell my wife, man, it's really discouraging. What are they thinking? You know, I'd be down in the dumps about it. I'd be thinking about it all week, and I'd be trying to kind of make it right. And, man, I, I'm just really upset, right? It would get me upset. It probably would get you upset, too. In face of this, Jesus, it says, very next section, he keeps on going, going to every city, every village, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He maintains the course of ministry and the living that God had called him to. James Montgomery Boyce said this. I think this is good. He said, we should learn that our best and most effective response to those who hate, criticize, or slander is to merely keep doing the right thing. We can always answer our enemies by doing good. Isn't that true, both in our personal lives, in the life of your church here, as you face criticism for, not criticism for just being an annoying person, right? I read a quote today that says, those who are constantly being persecuted are probably annoying, and those who are never being persecuted are probably not faithful, right? So, but if you're, so if you're always being persecuted, it might just be that you're being belligerent, but, okay, as we face criticism for doing what's right, standing on the Word of God, then one of the best ways that we can most effectively answer that is by simply continuing to do the right thing, continuing to follow after Jesus. Right? And this is a hard thing to do. I think of D.L. Moody and that quote, that famous quote where he says, at the end of the day, he says, my way of doing it is better than your way of not doing it. Have you ever heard that? He says, people were constantly criticizing him in his ministry, and he says, well, my way of doing it is better than your way of not doing it. Right? Now, certainly we have to give thought to how we do things. We want to be careful with that. And yet the reality is, People that are preaching the gospel and seeking to move forward for the Lord and advancing His church are always going to face criticism, right? Those who want to maintain the status quo, who just want church to maybe be a nice place, or, you know, we don't need to reach those people, or I kind of like it the way it is now, or I don't want to mess things up too much. People who want to maintain the status quo are always going to be a little bit suspicious, maybe a little bit critical of those who are seeking to reach the lost for the sake of the gospel. And yet, folks, when the ministry of the gospel is at stake, 
we have to have a single vision. Right? We have to have our eye on the calling that Christ has given us. Time is short. Right? We, don't have, we really don't have time to constantly be answering our critics. We're to be salt and light so that others may see our good works, as the Bible says, and give glory to our Father in heaven. So it's really crucial. I think of this all the time for our church that we not get bogged down in, in quibbling over lots and lots and lots of secondary matters. Have you ever noticed that? There's just certain churches, right, who just are constantly fighting and bickering about just the smallest details, right? We, we just voted last Sunday to, to approve spending a lot of money, okay, that we've been raising for a long time and praying about to remodel our auditorium. And I'll be honest, I, we're changing our pews and Churches split all the time over color of pews, right? I was actually a little nervous. Are we going to be quibbling over these small things? Are we going to be arguing about, oh, I kind of want this pew in, or I want this color carpet, or whatever it is. But see, the reality is, folks, that while churches and individual Christians might start quibbling and fighting over the smallest things, Jesus has given us a commission. He's given us a task, right? It's a mission to, to continue until He comes. And so we want to be busy about advancing that, about being busy about His work until He comes. Now, the text goes on and says that, that he, He's pressed on by the crowds. Okay, we're told that everywhere Jesus went, He had people calling out things like, Son of David, have mercy on me. There's a few verses back where it says that He's following, that He's leaving the crowds and He goes into Peter's house and they all follow Him in there. Okay, He's being constantly pressed on by the crowds. But apparently, He doesn't despise them. He doesn't disdain that, but He only has compassion. Verse 36 says he saw the crowds and what? Does he say, come on, give me a break. You know, I need a break here. I can't keep this up. He says he has compassion on them because they were fainted and scattered abroad. Okay, why did he have compassion? Because the text says they were troubled. They were being harassed. They were dejected. They were hopeless. What does that mean to be scattered abroad or to be dejected? Well, the text tells us they were like sheep Without a shepherd is what the text says. So Jesus looks at the crowds and he sees lots of sinful people doing sinful things and making sinful choices and just maybe being unthoughtful or unkind or misunderstanding things. And what's remarkable, folks, is that rather than getting irritated or upset at them or denouncing them, right? what does it say? He's moved with compassion because he realizes... These are people who are wandering in darkness. They don't have a shepherd, right? They, they need direction. I think this is interesting, folks, because this shows us something about the heart of our God, right? The Bible regularly calls God what? Our shepherd, right? And so we see God incarnate Jesus, and he has the heart of a shepherd, right? Now, what does that tell us? I think that's interesting because that tells us that God ultimately is over our lives. He's in charge even of our Christian growth. Right? God, God, do you believe that God has a plan for you? Do you believe that God is working in your heart and in your life? Do you believe that He's in charge even of your sanctification? The Bible tells us that He's lovingly leading us and guiding us. Psalm 23 says, For some, He leads us beside still waters. Maybe that's you right now. Things are going really well and you're happy for it. But some of you, maybe He's leading you right now through what seems like the valley of the shadow of death. And probably, for most of us, it'll be both of them. But in every case, right, the Bible tells us that He is leading us in paths of righteousness 
for His name's sake, for His glory. So we can trust the heart of our shepherd. He loves us. He's guiding us. But you know, what's funny is that when, when the Bible tells us that God has the heart of a shepherd, it doesn't just tell us that He's a shepherd. It also means what? By implication that we are sheep, right? This is a really interesting thing that the Bible always is calling us sheep. That the Bible uses that image of us a lot. And, you know, it's important to know the Bible doesn't just use that image because, you know, God just didn't know how to describe us. You know, He could have said dogs or zebra, you know, just, I don't know, whatever, sheep. How's that? It isn't that. That wasn't. God's using this intentionally, right, deliberately. He has a purpose. And why is that? It's because there's probably no animal on earth that needs more care than sheep, right? I mean, animals, a lot of animals can be wild and can kind of do it on their own. Sheep need constant care, right? They, they tend to wander off and fall into ditches when they're alone. They need shepherds who lovingly guide them and direct them. They're, they need to be together, right? Sheep are always in folds, right? I told our church when, when I talked about this a, a few weeks ago, you, you never see like, the one lone ranger sheep way off and the you know, the sheep's been living on his own for thirty years, just kind of on his own, right? They're always together, they're always in folds, right? They need each other, they need shepherds. And see that's the point. The Bible never anticipates that we as sheep will be living our Christian lives just kind of on my own. You know, I'm just gonna kinda of figure it out. I got a call from a man one time who was asking me what our church believed and what we practiced and he said we, my family hasn't been in church in six years. I said, well, why not? We can't find a church that agrees with us. And I said, wow. And he started throwing out all these things that were really unique views on everything. And, and I just said, you know, I'd find a church that, the closest church you can find and, and get there and listen to the Word of God and worship. I said, I said you, you, you weren't meant to be on your own. In fact, I didn't tell him this, but I thought maybe some of the reason he's developed some of these odd views is precisely because he hasn't had a shepherd, someone to guide and care for him, and other sheep who are saying, ah, I don't think that's in the Bible, you know, or kind of admonishing and helping him. You see, we, we need each other, right? God's called us and our Christian growth that that happens in the context of a community called the local church. And I'm assuming that here I'm going to say, I don't need to convince you of that, right? But by God's grace, I hope that that's confirming that in your heart and giving you more of a desire to follow here as, you, as you're led through the Word of God. And so Jesus looks and see that, sees that these are people without reliable spiritual guides. Rather, they're being, they're, they're really, if, if we know the context, they're being led away by the Pharisees. The Pharisees, rather than teaching true righteousness, have... Jesus has just spent a couple chapters denouncing their righteousness and saying that they've been teaching something that's really just works righteousness, right? So they've been just beating people with the club of works righteousness. So that they're torn up with guilt and, 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 and they feel like they can never uh, measure up to what God expects of them when in reality it simply was what the Pharisees had taught. They were teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And so Jesus comes and recognizes that these are people without a sheep and they need a shepherd, right? And I think another interesting point, folks, is that as Jesus shows compassion on these people, that he never loses the necessity of holiness, right? I was thinking about this and thinking, you know, with us, it's often that having compassion and having a zeal for holiness or upholding God's standards tend to conflict with each other, right? 
I mean, isn't this the case? I mean, so, you know, think about it. Compassion, we have compassion, real compassion towards someone. We tend to start making excuses for their sin, right? Ah, oh, they just, you know, had a tough upbringing. They have had a tough upbringing or whatever it is. And we, we start to make excuses for their sin, and somehow we lose uh, the high ground of holiness. Or, the other side, we're passionately concerned about what's right. We're passionately concerned about holiness and upholding God's standard. And as we do that, we fall headlong into self-righteousness, right? We're just, bam, this is it, and this is where we are. And we tend to be judgmental. We tend to be self-righteous, right? So it seems to me, and maybe it's just maybe I'm the only one like this. I don't know, but I, I think it might be that we're all like this. We tend to either be compassionate and permissive a little bit, or zealous for holiness and self-righteous, right? I have a hard time being like my Savior, Jesus, who that was not the case, who was absolutely compassionate and yet never mistook that or never let down the high ground of holiness, right? We look at the entire context of the book of Matthew, it's clear that Jesus recognizes the great sinfulness of, of sin, and yet He's compassionate towards people. Right? The book as a whole says that Jesus came to save people from their sin. So, Jesus is the same Savior who will articulate just absolute... He's, he, he just has outrage at sin. Matthew 23. Think of like the temple, uh, the, the, the money changers. But then He weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Right? He's the same Savior. So, may we be more like our Master. Right? standing firm against sin, and yet having hearts of compassion. Folks, let me just kind of stop and just say by word of application, when it comes especially to lost people like these, the lost sheep, okay, it's very easy for us to adopt a posture of outrage towards sin. And certainly that's right, right? Towards sin, uh, you know, we, we, we don't want to welcome that. We want, to, we want to treat that as Scripture treats it. And yet so often we will treat sinful people, lost people, and our posture towards them will be one of anger, right, or, or resentment or harshness. And yet when we look at this, what we see is Jesus looks at really sinful people making probably dumb decisions and doing all sorts of things. And rather than articulating outrage at them, right, he, he has a part of compassion for them. Why? The text says because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're wandering in darkness. The Bible says that, that, that before you come to Christ, that, that your, your mind is darkened. You're alienated from the life of God, right? So, so you're like a sheep without a shepherd. And so sometimes, I'll be honest, folks, I'm sometimes befuddled by people who would just be absolutely so harsh towards someone who's not a Christian. And the reality is, what do we expect? Right? They're not believers. Right? They haven't experienced the life of God that's in them. So why not the better route of seeking by God's grace to continue not to accommodate sin or to treat it as if it's nothing? Absolutely not. But by God's grace to continue to seek to call them to repentance and faith. Right? That we show compassion and realize... What they need more than anything isn't a self-help program or some kind of, you know, three steps to moral improvement or, you know, they need to get... What they need is Jesus, right? Just like we do, right? So, may we be more like Christ, compassionate while standing firm against sin. 
So we see a little bit of Jesus' compassion just in his ministry generally. But then we see some more of Christ's compassion as he asks us in verse 36 to pray. This is number two where he asks us to pray. Look at verse 37. He says, he shares his observation with the disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There is so much to be done and so few workers to do the work. And isn't that true today, right? (laughs) There's so much to be done and so few workers to do the work, right? I, I just read a book and was working through this and the most really just kind of generous, a real generous estimate would say that there might be 4 billion people in the world today, a little over 4 billion people that are outside of Christ, that don't know Christ. Think about that. that, That's being pretty generous. Those 2 billion that are Christians are, you know, you know, it's those kind of things where, yeah, they say to be Christian and, you know, well, we'll see. I'm not sure how many of those are really, truly understand their sinfulness and their need of Christ. But regardless, let's say 2 billion, okay? Can you even picture 4 billion people? I I, I can't even grasp that. And yet, we're told that that there could be even more than that, really, of 4 billion people that are outside of Christ. You think of even just in this area. I mean, just draw like a 10-mile radius around this church. How many people don't know Christ? How many people are broken in their sin? How many Christians need help and encouragement and and exhortation? It's staggering, isn't it? It's absolutely staggering. So... What should, be, what should be done, really? I mean, think about it. This work is great. Jesus calls us to the work. So what should we do? Should we begin having training sessions in evangelism? I mean, you guys, this week, start. Maybe we'll do some training sessions about how we can evangelize. Or let's maybe establish some strategic church plannings. Or say, okay, what missionaries can go and start a couple of key seminaries across the world to train national pastors? Or, or what, you know, what should be done? How do we do this? And at one time or another, all of those things probably are, are very good. But all of them are secondary steps that should only take place after lots of time and lots of energy is poured into the first step, which is what? Yeah, pray, right? Jesus says, first thing, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is what moves Jesus to make this straightforward command. There's no other way to interpret it, right? Pray. I mean, you just can't get around that. Or if you heard lots of people interpret the Bible in funny ways, I think this could, yeah, he might be trying to say this, and, and it could actually, you know, you really can't do that with this verse, right? Here's the command. Pray the Lord of the harvest. So that, that's pretty straightforward. First thing we're to do is to pray because the scope of the work in front of us is staggering. Think about it. The wickedness in the world is is immense, right? You look out and see the world and see that it's increasing in wickedness. Like we said, the sheer number of people outside of Christ is incomprehensible. So, folks, because of that, that shouldn't paralyze us. That shouldn't discourage us. It should lead us to say that nothing will suffice but the power of God, right? It is only God who can do this work. So we have to ask Him to do the work that only He can do. Pray, the Lord of the harvest. Now, this this is original with me. I I went to a Christian college, and one of the Bible professors said this. He said, if the laborers are few, then the implication is that the loiterers are many. You see that? The laborers are few, 
The implication is the loiterers are many. Because on one hand, there really isn't any shortage of people that are Christians, right, that are born again. Think about it. On the other hand, if we really were all committed to this task, this great commission that God's given us, what could we really do? If we were all faithful in sharing the gospel. So the implication, if the labors are few, is perhaps the loiterers, the people kind of standing around and not really being faithful, are many. So here's a question. By way of application, you probably already know it, right? Do you stand with the laborers or the loiterers? What are you doing, you right now, to minister to those who are in need, to those who are scattered abroad like sheep without a shepherd, to those who are still in darkness? Let me ask you really practical questions. Is there anyone you've reached out to spiritually in the last month? I mean, spiritually. Anybody you've reached out to spiritually in the last month? Could anyone stand up tonight and give a testimony and say that their load is a little bit lighter, that their heart is encouraged, that they've been challenged because of your ministry with them? Anybody like that? Are you a part of those people who work for Jesus, right? who do the work of the ministry? And then, of course, even as we move on into evangelism, right? Is there anyone that you... Is there anyone you know that doesn't know the gospel? Then the question is, why not, right? Do you know anybody who does not know the gospel? And the question would be, why not? There's obviously a need, folks, right? We're aware of it. So we have to come with urgency and ask Him to do something. What? We have to ask Him to send out laborers. Christ desires to help those who are helpless, to give hope to people who are hopeless. So Jesus tells us, to pray. Are you praying, even today, that God would send forth laborers into the harvest? D.A. Carson said this, I am convinced that the really great issues before us will be settled on our knees. This does not mean that we should do nothing but pray. It does mean we should do nothing without praying. You see that? So Jesus is not saying, Ah, oh, don't worry about sharing the gospel. Don't worry about ministry. Just pray. I'll take care of it. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean we should do nothing but pray. But it does mean that we should do nothing without praying, right? We don't go forward in our own strength, saying, I can handle this. No, no, no. Jesus says, he recognizes, we will need the power of the Spirit, this, the enormity of this task. In fact, should I say it? The impossibility of the task of changing someone's heart spiritually demands that we ask God to do what only he can do. And yet he has chosen to use us, folks, right? He's chosen to use people to testify. Otherwise, he could have just used the rocks to cry out, right? The rocks could just cry out and testify. But no, no, he uses us. He uses people to minister to each other. So let's pray, and then let's do the work as well. And so that leads us right really into our last point. We see more of Jesus' compassion as he calls us to work, as he calls us as workers, right? The call to prayer is central to what he's saying, but it isn't everything. Right? As one commentator said, a faith without works is dead, so also is prayer without mission. Right? So it's not enough just to pray. We also are going to go and do something. In fact, this is where we get into chapter 10. The very first people that Jesus tells to pray, he also tells to go. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest, and then they don't break up and have a prayer meeting. He says, okay, pray, but now here, I want you to go. I'm going to send you out to do some things. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, He called 
to him the twelve disciples. The, the word call carries the idea of urgently inviting someone to, to take part in a certain task. Jesus is kind of raising the stakes here spiritually. He's calling them to something more than they were doing previously. In other words, it's not enough for these disciples and for us simply to follow him. He now wants to send them out to do something as well. Right? Do you see that? Our Christian lives are actually about more than just personal holiness. So it's, it's certainly not less than that, right? I mean, it's really clear that God desires us to be holy, to be like Him, to be sanctified, to grow. Right? I mean, any Christian knows that. And yet it doesn't stop there, right? It isn't that God desires for you to be holy and that's it. You know, just, just work on that and you're fine. No, no, no. God's actually tied it so that we grow to be more like Jesus as we, in obedience, do what He's commanded us to do in sharing the gospel with others. Right? And so we're called the faithful ministry. It's about what we can do for the sake of His cause. You know, for instance, God may be calling you to something specific. He calls you to minister, but you know that you can be doing X and Y, but God's called you to Z. And and Jesus says, look, I'm calling you to, to follow me and also to go out into this harvest. And whatever it is that God might be laying on your heart or burdening you to do... That, it, it, it's, it, it's that that we obey Him with as we follow Him, as we're obedient and faithful followers of Christ. And then I think it's encouraging, it's very encouraging, that on the heels of this call, in verse 1, He says that He gave them authority as well. Power plus the right to exercise it over demons and unclean spirits and heal every disease and every affliction, right? So certainly He's not giving us that power, but the principle is still there, right? I mean, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, you know, baptizing them, teaching them to deserve all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, right? So we're, we're not called to do this alone. Jesus is not saying, go out and be the best you can be in your own strength. You know, whatever that is, I'm fine with that. No, no, no. He's saying, go forward in my superabounding strength that I give you. Okay, to do things that you cannot do on your own. He's calling them to be doing the things that he was doing and ministering this gospel. Just like the master, so shall the servant be. So we're to follow Jesus and go forward in his strength. And so, folks, when Jesus has called you to minister to people, to share the gospel with people, he hasn't called you to do it alone. He actually empowers you to do it. So there's a sense in which you ought to expect inexplicable spiritual success. Now, here's what I mean by that, okay? Let me say what I don't mean. I'm not saying, you know, what's commonly known as like the prosperity gospel, right? So I'm not saying, you know, you should go out and expect an amazing life, you know? You go out and serve Jesus, and you'll be healed, and you'll drive this car, and you'll see thousands of people saved, and it'll be great. Okay, that, you know, that may or may not be true, right? So that, in fact, is probably not going to be true. So that's not what I'm saying when I say you should go out and minister and expect inexplicable spiritual success. But there is a sense in which when you go in the power of the Spirit, that, that you should go out and think something like this. That person is incredibly hard, and there's no way that they will change. But you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Because you have the power of the Spirit. It's working. Right? It's not about what you're saying. 
to change their heart. The Spirit of God's changing their heart. Or, if you say things like, I'm a horrible speaker and I'm not very smart and no one will ever be encouraged or challenged by what I say or what I share at this gathering or this Bible study or whatever it is, but you shouldn't be surprised when afterwards they come up and say, that's exactly what I needed. Thank you. And they really are. Because it isn't about how smart or whatever that you are, right? It's about the, the Spirit working through you, through His Word. Because God is at work, there, there should be times, right? Regularly. Where we just say, yeah, there's not human explanation for that. I didn't feel prepared. I didn't feel like I said the right thing when I sat down with that person. And yet, there they go, right? They were encouraged. And even if you are gifted, if everybody knows, man, that guy, man, he, he can sit down with somebody and really explain things. And really, even if you are gifted, there should be the mark of the Spirit's anointing on you so that people look and say, ah, yeah, yeah, that person's gifted that. But you know what? The, the Spirit of God's at work through that person, right? Because God is empowering them. Because at the end of the day, folks, it really doesn't have much at all, if anything, to do with our qualifications, our trainings, our talents, our resume. It has everything to do with the Spirit's power, right? When it comes to spiritual working, you can have a resume a mile long and have all the experience in the world. You're not going to change a heart. You're not going to bring someone from darkness into light. You can't do it. The Spirit of God can. So, with the power of God resting upon you as you go forward and His strength, there should be a sense in which you expect inexplicable spiritual successes. And when I say inexplicable, really, the only explanation could be it goes back to God. So the Lord of the harvest is sending us out. And really, as this passage closes, it lists all these people's names. And what's very clear is the Lord of the Harvest is sending out weak, sinful men. I looked and saw a bunch of people that'll do, like uh, preachers, that'll do like long series through these names. Okay, they'll do six weeks of sermons through, you know, the names of the disciples. Okay, maybe you've heard preachers like that. But really, all they're getting at is saying, these are, these are messed up guys. <laughs> they're really sinful people. They they have a lot of problems. They're the last people that you would expect to go out in superabounding strength to minister the gospel in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Right? These are the last people you would expect. And yet that's precisely right those that God calls and sends out. The Lord of the harvest sends out those who are weak. So that, Corinthians says, people's faith would not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So if you're sitting here tonight and you say, I, you know, I'm, I'm really broken. You know, There's a lot of things people don't know about me. and I'm really sinful and I struggle a lot. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not the, the person to be helping other people. You know, I need help myself. You're the right person. Right? That's exactly the kind of person that God wants to use. The kind of person who knows they're needy and is looking to Jesus. That's the kind of person that God uses. That's the kind of people these disciples were. God doesn't call and use people that kind of reach a certain point where, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but i got things together. All right, now you're ready. You're ready to go out and be used by God. That's absolutely not the case. Right? God calls and uses people who are broken, sinful, needy people, who, but who recognize it. That's the key. And are looking to Jesus for help and for grace daily, day by day. Those are the people that Jesus calls and powers and uses for the sake of His kingdom. So if you're here tonight 
and you say, boy, I'm just not, you know, that's just not me. And I, I, by God's grace, trust Him that He can and will use you for His glory. So let me close with two points of application that are just absolutely 100% from the text. Really simple. Number one, here's what we consider tonight. What, how should we go out from this building? Number one, pray. There's the application. Pray. Pray what? Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest. Okay, that's an unequivocal command. Are we doing that? Are we praying and asking God to, to, to allow people to be saved? For Him to do great things across our nation, across our state, even across the globe, right? For God to bring people to Himself. For God to call people to ministry. For God to call people, not even into full-time ministry, but just to be faithful witnesses. Are you praying for you? Right? The Apostle Paul, folks, the greatest of all the apostles in Colossians chapter 4, the greatest of the, perhaps not the, what, you know, a great apostle, right? I don't want to be overstating here, but certainly someone we would all look up to. I think we can all agree on that. And Colossians chapter 4 says, pray for me that I would have boldness to speak as I should speak and pray for an open door and then pray for clarity as I speak. Can you believe that? The Apostle Paul. Think about how mightily God used him. And he's saying, I need you guys to pray for me that I'll have courage to open my mouth and share the gospel. And that when I do, that there'd be an open door, the right opportunity. And that when I then that open door happens, it would be clear what I speak. So he's saying, pray for me. How much more do we need prayer for each other? Is this church praying for opportunity for evangelism? Maybe some of you say, boy, I love to share the gospel. I just don't have a lot of chance. You know, I just don't. Maybe it's just we're not just asking for it, right? Maybe we're just not praying. Lord, would you open a door, a door of utterance? I think is what the King James says. Pray for a door of utterance that it would be open to you and that you'd have boldness to speak as you ought and clarity as the message goes forward. So pray for other people to be faithful and pray for you. Pray for your brothers and sisters in this church to have opportunity for evangelism, to share the gospel. Number two. Number one was pray. Number two is simple. Go. Go. Let's pray that God will shake us from loitering into laboring. Right? And for some in this room, go might mean what it traditionally sounds like. You'll go to a hard place in a faraway field and do missions work and full-time ministry. Okay? I, I don't want to de-emphasize that. Certainly that could be the case for someone here. If that's you tonight, praise God. Right? Do it for God's glory. And yet most of us in this room will go by staying, right? I mean, that, 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 that's the reality. Most of us here are going to go, and it's going to be right here. Okay, it isn't that, you know, Jesus is in this next section here in verses 5 through 15. He's going to send the disciples out, and guess where he sends them? To the uttermost parts of the earth right away? Nope. To their own people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, go to your own people first. Many of us are going to be called to minister right in the very context God has called us to. But here's the key, and here's the point. Are we even doing it? Right? So if we're staying, that's fine. Right? Not everyone is called to full-time ministry, and that's okay. But if we're staying, are we ministering? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we being faithful to speak as we ought? So let's pray. You know, I'm just sure, because I know it's true in my life, right? I'm sure there's many of us who are, are loitering in a lot of ways, and we're not really laboring. We know that. 
The point of this tonight is not to say, ah, oh, I'm a miserable failure and go discouraged and walk out here with your head you know, down and, and great. You know, I just got to do better. Because if that's your motivation, it's just not going to happen, right? But the point of it is to just recognize that, that this is the case and then by God's grace, cast yourself upon His grace, right? Look to Christ. Look to the Spirit who empowers you. Pray that God will give you grace and opportunity to speak as you ought, to share as you ought. You see, folks, God has left us here for a reason, right? When He saved you, He didn't call you straight home. Sometimes you might wish He did, right? It's hard here on earth, and you say, why didn't He just, you know, it makes sense, right? Somebody accepts Christ, and they just go right to heaven. It'd be great. Wouldn't have to face the problems of the world and trials, and, you know, it'd be, be a nice thing. Why did God leave you here? He left you here to tell their people, right? To, to spread this news that we're passionate about. Because if you've experienced mercy, then what else can you do but, but tell others of this great mercy? And so by God's grace this week, let's be people that pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest, and then that we would go, maybe even by staying, but that we would be working until Jesus returns. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for our chance to consider these verses. They're familiar to us. I'm certain there's probably not a person gathered here tonight who has not thought about the Great Commission and the task you put before us. But Father, certainly we need encouragement and help and grace from you to be faithful in that calling. Too often the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke out what we know to be true. So often worldliness tends to be a spiritual anesthetic that just dulls us to your working. So, Father, we ask that you might shake us from our loitering into laboring, that we might be those who are consumed and grateful by your grace and for your grace, so that we might then communicate your grace to other people who do not have it. So we ask for the compassion of Jesus and the boldness of Jesus and the clarity of Jesus, that we might follow our Master and compassionately and graciously sharing this good news with those who are outside of Christ. We pray these things now in His name.